Greetings, YouTubers, thrill seekers, small gerbils, and people named Bob. Greetings and hello. It is I, your favorite obscure social studies teacher with just above average looks, intelligence, and style, Mr. Palumbo, and this is the Professor Liberty Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. You know, I appreciate it. I hope everyone listening is doing well and, uh, and you're having a good week. And if you'd like to email the show, the email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Send your questions, your comments, your concerns, your communist jokes, whatever. Send them to ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. We also have a website, ProfessorLiberty.com. Check that out. Man, what a week I had. It was one of those difficult weeks, you know, but one of those weeks that was worth it. Had a lot of difficult discussions with difficult students. I'm sure other educators know exactly what I'm talking about. But we also had a discussion about free speech in government class. And that kind of, you know, evolved into, you know, safe spaces and, and being offended and people saying mean words and, uh, you know, most of the kids were for free speech, but all of the students seemed to be very uncomfortable and they didn't know how to cope with dealing with ideas that they disagree with. We talked about how living in a free and diverse society, there's going to be disagreement. But then, you know, as we kept talking and this idea of offending and, and being afraid of conflict, uh, I said something kind of profound in my own mind, and since this is my podcast, I'm going to share it. I shared that sheltering yourself from harsh words or criticisms or anything that makes you uncomfortable isn't going to solve the problem. In fact, it might make things worse. Think of it this way. You know, everyone's got all these anxieties, social anxieties, performance anxieties, speaking, whatever, speaking anxieties, all these all these things, and I told the kids the best way to overcome fear or an anxiety is to expose yourself to it. You can't get over the fear of heights if you never decide to, you know, have the courage to climb a tree or to go on top of a building. How do we find out when we were kids that the monster is never really under your bed? It was just a figment of our imagination. Well, we had the courage one night to take our flashlight and look. And then we decide, hey, that monster was never there in the first place. And, you know, that's scary stuff. It's, it's, it's scary. It's hard to have courage. It's hard to stand up to things that you're afraid of. But that's the only way you're going to be able to deal with it. You know, you know, surrendering or retreating into your little cocoon and retreating into that cocoon. And you keep retreating. You just get more fears, not less. And anyways, I don't know, you know, sometimes in my class we go on tangents. Uh, I'm not sure how that went with free speech, but I think the kids did appreciate it. All right, on to the show. So, speaking of class, in my U.S. history class, we began studying early progressivism. This uh, political movement appeared in America sometime around the end of the Civil War. Most historians say that the progressive movement started in the late 19th century and ended around 1920. 
The progressive movement brought us things like child labor laws, the Food and Drug Administrations, ideas like minimum wage, and more democratic participation in government. If it wasn't for the progressive movement, we might not have things like public education or the Environmental Protection Agency or national parks or safety regulations on business or business regulations at all. Whatever you think about these policies or these issues, the progressive movement also brought us some dandies, some real doozies, if you will. Things like popular election of senators, the income tax, the Federal Reserve, which I don't know about you, but these three things make up the unholy trinity of American history and politics. And I'm going to make the argument in this podcast that the progressive movement, though uh, not as in the forefront as it used to be, is alive and well in American politics today. So we're going to discuss early progressivism, and we're going to look at who made up the movement. We're going to look at uh, the legacy of progressivism. And uh, like I said, I'm going to make the point in this podcast that there's progressives in both parties today, just like there was progressives in both parties 100 years ago. Now, if you were to Google progressivism, you'll find a definition that mentions social reform or reform in general. One definition I saw stated that progressivism is, quote, a political movement that advocates for social reform, unquote. All of these definitions are correct, but they fall short. They all miss a key element to progressivism that makes it progressivism. That missing piece is government. So since I'm a certified educational professional, previously certified in two of these 50 states of America, and since I have advanced degrees, I only have one, I have an advanced degree, I'm going to give you my own, the Professor Liberty definition of progressivism. And here it is. Progressivism, quote, a political movement beginning in late 19th century America that advocated for political and social reform through more direct government action. Unquote. You see, boys and girls, to be a progressive, one has to see government as an ally, a tool, a vehicle, something upon which reform is sought and can be achieved. For whatever reasons, most definitions leave this key part out of the textbooks. But it's the one thing that all progressives, whether Republican or Democrat, have in common. If a person is part of the progressive movement, whether a hundred years ago or today, they all see government as a protagonist, a proponent, a champion of change that they wish to see. This is obviously going to contrast with someone who is libertarian or conservative who see the government as a prime antagonist, the enemy, a necessary evil that the founders like Madison and Washington describe. So this is the definition we'll be using, and in fact, this is the definition I gave my students because I think it's a, an important distinction. So let's answer the question, why did the progressive movement begin? That's a great place to start. Well, it was a reaction to the Second Industrial Revolution, and it started, which started in earnest after the Civil War. During this time, the United States experienced rapid change brought on by new technologies and innovations. The modern era was upon us, and it broke through like that 
Kool-Aid guy that used to break through the wall. You guys remember that guy? Remember that commercial? The Kool-Aid guy? Did he have a name? The Kool-Aid guy, that huge pitcher of red Kool-Aid, he would bust through the wall and he'd say, oh yeah! Not not a uh, not a Randy Savage macho man. Oh yeah, but but in that in that ballpark anyway. Anyway, industrialization and urbanization brought with it things like electricity, subways, factory jobs, light bulbs, telephones, automobiles. But it also brought a slew of challenges and problems: the crowding of cities, the unsanitary living and working conditions. There were no safety regulations on business. Immigrants were pouring in from poorer parts of Europe with very little skills. There was corruption in government. What else is new? People were working long hours for very little money, very little pay. And folks were concerned about these issues. And they saw this unregulated uh, economy as one of the main reasons for all these challenges. And let's be frank, these are issues that needed to be addressed. Coming into the modern era, the mechanized era, I think everyone would agree that a completely unregulated economy brings more harm than benefit. I'm certainly not advocating for a complete unregulated economy. And yet we see that its very essence, though, progressivism was a reaction to laissez-faire economics. Well, what's laissez-faire economics? That's a French word, laissez-faire for leave it alone, let it be, right? So it, this was a time in American history where there was very little, if any, regulation of businesses in America. And the point I'm trying to stress is progressivism's reaction to this unregulated economy, this antagonism to the free market, has never fully gone away. My old trusty McGraw-Hill textbook. Let's pull that out. Well, you know, I prefer Holt, but I've only had a few uh, editions of Holt, but McGraw-Hill is decent. Anyway, the 2013 edition describes progressivism and its origins in this way. Quote, progressivism was partly a reaction to laissez-faire economics and its emphasis on an unregulated market. Progressives generally believed that industrialization and urbanization had created many social problems. After seeing the poverty of the working class and the filth and crime of urban societies, reformers began to doubt the free market's ability to address these problems, unquote. So to be a progressive, you're going to have an automatic antagonistic view of the free market economy. And you're, and conversely, you're going to have an automatic uh, feeling of pro-government. Government is the way that we're going to fix it. And this is why most progressives today are in the Democrat camp. The Democrats are the big government party. Well, that's, they're both big government parties. But the Democrats are the big, big, big government party. The Republicans are just the, you know, sort of big I don't want to get you too confused with titles and political ideologies and words and definitions, but this is also why liberals and progressives uh, tend to flock together. There are differences between a liberal or a modern-day liberal and a progressive. They're both liberals believe in change. Well, so do progressives. So you can see how they share that in common. So we know how it started 
Now let's talk about who made up the progressive movement. Reading from the same textbook, quote, Progressives belonged to both political parties. Most were urban, educated, and in the middle class, unquote. And here's the kicker. Listen to this. Quote, most agreed that government should take an active role in solving society's problems. Unquote. That's what makes you, boys and girls, a progressive. Early progressives were anyone and everyone in the middle class to the upper middle class. Unlike the populist movement which came before it, which was made up of farmers and laborers, progressives were doctors, lawyers, clergy members, and again, they were found in both political parties. In fact, you might be able to say that Republicans were the original progressives. And this is not a, this is not a tough leap or a tough argument to make. Uh, Republicans were founded to end slavery. Back in those days, that was a very progressive idea. The first two progressive presidents were Republican, Theodore Roosevelt and Howard Taft. So what's the legacy of progressivism? Well, we mentioned a little bit about that in the beginning of the podcast, but let's take a good, bad, ugly approach to answer this. The good. Like I said earlier, if we didn't have the progressive movement, we might not have things like child labor laws or safety requirements in the workplace. We might not have food and safety or food and drug, rather, regulations. We might not have things like workman's compensation, where when you get hurt, your company that you work for helps pay your bills. We might not have public schools, which currently are in pretty horrible shape. However, I don't think anyone would argue uh, against public school, right? The idea of having an educated population is a good idea, and that came from progressivism. We can't ignore the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave women over half the population, mind you, the right to vote. Heck, even things like investigative journalism is the result of progressive ideas, the muckrakers you might remember. Imagine if media still got back to doing stuff like that, right? Investigating power, exposing corruption. We would be much better off as a country. That, again, is a progressive idea. Okay, let's talk about the bad. The bad and ugly might overlap a bit, but I'll do my best to try to delineate between the two. <laughs> you know what? I'm probably just going to rattle off a bunch of things, and then you can decide <laughs> what's bad and what's not. Uh, the first thing I have to address is this idea of regulation. Anyone who has studied economics knows that regulation kills or stifles economic activity. So even though some regulation is necessary, and again, we are not advocating for an unregulated economy, but any regulation over what is necessary becomes a burden and becomes harmful and downright destructive to business and economic activity. And since we began to think that government should regulate the economy, that's all it does, more and more and more. Every presidency, we've got more and more and more regulations coming out. I mentioned in the class when we were talking about this, if you go to California, they got all those signs that say, this might cause cancer. Sitting here might cause cancer. Wearing this might cause cancer. You know, eating this might cause cancer. The material in this might cause cancer. You know, 
being a Republican might cause cancer. No, it doesn't say that. They probably want to say that, but they don't. But don't you think this is a prime example of safety regulations gone awry? You know, um, putting the calories on the menu. So when you go eat, you see that your uh, Big Mac, you know, and your large fry and your large, that's like 4,000 calories. It's probably more than that, right? Is that something that we want the government to do? For every regulation, there is a cost placed on the business owner, not the government. The government gets to make the rule, and then if you want to be in business, you have to follow that rule. The more costs, the less profit. The less profit, the less expansion. The less jobs, the less wages, the less wealth. And this is why a lot of economies in Europe are slow. They've got 15 20% chronic unemployment. They grow it at 1%, 2%, because they have all of these regulations. Another bad, and one that perhaps could be classified as ugly, is simply the thinking or seeing government as a vehicle for social change. This isn't the government's role, and yet it is the prevailing view in America today. President Obama I think he made this quote when he was president-elect at the time. He said, quote, at, the, at this particular moment, only government can provide the short-term boost necessary to list, lift us up out of recession so deep and so severe, unquote. Now, this kind of gets into Keynesianism, which is an economic philosophy that, that thinks that government should get involved to spur the economy. Um, I'm not sure if that's a progressive idea or not. Maybe it is. Maybe they're, they're, they're certainly related in the fact that they think government should do something. But it's safe to say that President Obama here is showing his progressive colors. He thinks that the government has a role to play and a powerful role to play. And, you know, individuals, free individuals that which make up the free economy – Maybe they take a backseat because government is the only one that can fix these problems, according to him. The reason I would say this is bad or even downright ugly is because this way of thinking, the fact that government can be a positive agent for change, is antithetical to the ideas that founded this country. According to the founding generation, government is meant to keep people safe, punish wrongdoers, crime, and protect natural rights, such as life and liberty. If you study history, you'll quickly see that every great program, every great government program learned about in your history books never, never did what it was promised. Keeping the world safe for democracy under a Woodrow Wilson, all that gave us was more tyranny and more dictatorships. The New Deal under FDR kept the country in the Great Depression. It was World War II that lifted it out. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society spent millions and millions to bring utopia. All it did was break up families, especially black families, and increase dependence on welfare. You know what's super ironic, though, and I want to make sure I make this point. It's super ironic how hated Richard Nixon is, especially among Democrats and liberals and progressives. And yet, he is probably the most successful progressive president we've ever had. 
Uh, Mr. Palumbo, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Palumbo, you are showing that you don't know what you're talking about with your right-wing extremism, Mr. Palumbo. Richard Nixon is a mean Republican, Mr. Palumbo. He's an evil, white supremacist Republican. Look, okay, let me ask you a question. Okay, go. Do you like the Environmental Protection Agency? Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. I recycle. Do you like... The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, otherwise known as OSHA. Uh, sure, I, I guess. I don't, I don't mind that stuff. Both were formed during Nixon. Nixon also favored lowering the voting age to 18, which passed with the ratification of the 26th Amendment in 1973. Remember, one of the tenets of progressivism is more participation in government. And what better way to do that than have a bunch of teenagers help us pick the leader of our nation? Nixon also got us off the gold standard, which gave us brand new cars in 2022 for only $80,000. Nixon was in favor of the speed limit laws that made all the states get to 55 miles per hour because, you know, the federal government should compel all the states to do what it says because that's what the Constitution says. <clears throat> Wrong again, Johnny. The list goes on and on with Nixon. I, I would really, I just find it funny that liberals hate Nixon. And he's probably the most effective liberal president we've ever had. Anyway, so let's talk about the ugly, and I'm just going to give you three. Three reasons or three ways that progressivism gave us an ugly legacy. That doesn't even make any sense what I just said. The ugly legacy of progressivism. How about that? That sounds better. I'll just give you three. The 16th, the 17th, and the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. Or what some historians call the progressive amendments. These amendments, in my opinion, are the darkest part of the progressive legacy, and their ratification fundamentally transformed, to borrow a Obama phrase, the United States into something it was never intended to be. The 16th Amendment is the income tax amendment, the 17th Amendment is the direction, direct election of senators, and the 18th Amendment is the prohibition amendment. Unfortunately, only one of these three terrible amendments has been repealed. However, to hear what I have to say about these abominations, you'll have to tune in next time. Cliffhanger alert. Hey, if it works for Netflix, it can work for me as well. So tune in next time for a discussion on the progressive amendments. I might have to take some antidepressants before writing this episode because, well, to me, it's really depressing. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcast and give us a five-star rating. If you write a review and tell me about it, I will send you a free Professor Liberty sticker. No charge to you. Also check out activities and worksheets on TeachersPayTeachers.com. Follow me on Facebook. Hook us up on Pinterest and Parlor. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty.